by the OFS collector, OFS collector, OFS collector, OFS collector, OFS collector, OFS collector, OFS collector. your host Peter Mevit today. Uh, today we're having a very amazing conversation. Uh, one and only Rufaro uh, Samanga. Uh, she'll introduce herself shortly. Uh, but like we've always done each week, we always try to tackle different topics, uh, have different guests on and speak about different dynamics that relate to us as young Black people, uh, especially in the professional world, things that impact us. And this week, I think I've been trying to have this conversation for the longest time. And today is better no late than never. Uh, we're going to be talking about the aspects of the vaccine, but I think more so to separate just from speaking about the vaccine, we're going to be speaking about Rufaro, who she is, what she does, and get a kind of one-on-one understanding of what she is as a person, what she believes in, her views on life, and you'll get to know a bit more. Uh, so just to get the ball rolling, let me introduce Rufaro. Rufaro, welcome to the Chats podcast. Hi. You know, I actually wanted to kind of chuckle when you're like the one and only Rufaro Samanga because Rufaro is such a common name in, in Zim. Um, people here are always like, oh my goodness, it's such an exotic name. And I'm like, eh, if you go to Zim, everybody and their friend is called Rufaro. So I was just like, am I the one and only? But I get what you say. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Perfect. What exactly does your name actually mean though? So Rufaro is... I mean, not that deep. Rufaro just means joy or happiness in Shona. I think I live up to my name quite well. So, yeah. Okay. So in terms of just because you just mentioned you from Sim, obviously your name comes from Uh that. Uh, Just give us context of your background exactly. Where did you grow Uh up? How was your upbringing Uh per se? Yeah. So I was born in South Africa, um, but my parents, my family are from Zim. So I always say, you know, I'm Zimbabwean South African. Um, it's, it's quite a contentious thing sometimes, this identity thing. You'll have people say, yeah, but you were born in South Africa, so you can't be Zimbabwean. Then I'll go home to Zim and they'll say, yeah, but you were also born in, you know, South Africa, so you can't be Zimbabwean. But, you know, I, I always say that I, I'm not um, just the one without the other. I am both. So I always say I'm Zimbabwean South African, but born here raised here, went to school here. Um, but Zim was always that place when, you know, school holidays, a funeral happens, a wedding is going to happen, whatever the case may be, we were back home. Um, yeah, so I was, yeah, born and raised here, but very much a, a, a Zimbo at heart as well. Okay. And in terms of family, yeah. are you like the first born, last born? Yeah, hey, I'm so I'm the, the firstborn um, of three, and I have two younger siblings, both boys. So yeah, I am the eldest. Sheesh, there's responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming from yeah. an African household context, that means, you know, growing up, you had to kind of be the one who had to kind of cheer on and be the face of, you know, the child, children taking on the responsibilities. Did you actually get to enjoy your childhood in terms of, you know, does it stereotype that, you know, being a firstborn, yeah. you have to go through the mud first and everyone else gets it easy? Yeah. Is that true? Honestly, 
I think, you know, I've seen it in, in, in other families, but I think because, you know, I, I grew up in such a chilled black family. Uh, maybe if I'd grown up in Zim, things would have been different. But, you know, when we grew up here, like my mom and dad, pretty chilled people. Um, yes, I, I never had, you know, this firstborn pressure to like, oh my gosh, I need to do this. And, and I think I just, you know, had a very, a very much self-inflicted pressure of I need to do well at school because my dad was very academic um, oriented. Um, but, you know, I, I had a childhood, I had a fun childhood, you know, I, I spent very little of it thinking, am I, you know, being um, a role model to my younger siblings? None of that. I think that only really came for me um, much later on in life when my dad passed and, you know, I was now in, you know, in varsity and, you know, the boys were going through, you know, the, the typical teenagers and being a handful for my mom. And um, that's when I was like, oh, you know, I wonder how much of what I do in my personal life and also professionally, you know, kind of influences them in terms of, you know, what they think for their own lives. But, you know, when I was growing up, I was just a kid doing my own thing. Okay. Okay. No, I, I think. Yeah. I would probably say I have the opposite effect. Uh, I'm the last born, so. Really? Yeah. So. Oh, you're the baby. Yeah, I'm the baby. <laughs> Although my dynamics even more worse because uh, my brother's my oldest brother is probably twenty uh-huh. fifty, and you see, like the the age what? gap between my siblings is quite big, so it almost felt like I was wow. the only child in some dynamics. So yeah, that was just yeah. Wow, how many are you at home? Uh, we're probably like four. Yeah, we're four, in fact. Yeah, four. Yeah. 12. Wow, 50 is. So, how old are you? I'm um, 29. If I may ask. 20, 20, 29. Thanks. Yeah. That's not bad. That's not bad. Uh, yeah, well, that's his press. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I think the question I was reasonable asking you about just your background and yeah. understanding exactly how you brought up uh, as to see exactly what. F- what, how it contributes to who you are overall. And mm. I, I assume, obviously, there's some aspects of how you grew up led to who you are yeah. today. Um, also, yeah. you did some journalism as well. You also some act- yeah. you did some, also some activism work as well in terms of even your mm. journalism, things you write about, uh, especially yeah. in terms of issues related to, either to women, also speak to broader issues related to young people. Mm. Um, so I think I was just trying to understand, is there a link between that? Is that contributed towards mm. your upbringing? Uh, or in your mm-hmm. view, is it just something that you realize as an adult? Um, hmm. I think, uh, the nerdy part of me, which is, you know, so this, you know, people always say to me, what exactly do you do? Because you'll be tweeting about articles you wrote, and then you're also a scientist. And I always say, um, I have a very multidimensional career. Um, you know, we often talk about, um, having to choose between, oh, did you want to be this artsy kind of, you know, language oriented person, or did you want to go into the sciences? And for me, I wanted to do both. Right. But I think at the time when I was in grade 12 and thinking of, Hey, what am I going to study at university? I was really pulled towards the sciences. Um, and I think also just things like language and journalism, depending on which school you go to, don't always necessarily get great PR. So I always say, you know, when I was young, I didn't know that I could one be a writer but also you know make money from writing right um you're always told yeah if you become a writer you're going to be poor you're not going to make money and for me that's been the complete opposite I've made my first money from writing um so I think you know going towards the science the sciences rather was more because um that's what had the best PR when I was in high school. Um, my dad, you know, much as he was, you know, very invested in, you know, my, my academics, he was quite, um, you know, despite being a very typical Shona 
man in some senses. He was very, um, what's the word, liberal in terms of go off and, you know, study whatever you want to study, like just, you know, as long as you study something. Um, but he was very supportive of, you know, me wanting to become a scientist. And my undergrad was in molecular biology. And, you know, he used to call me randomly and say, hey, what are you studying again? And I had to be like, I'm doing molecular and cell biology. So he was, you know, super stoked um, that that was the route that, you know, I was taking. But he was also very supportive of, you know, my aspirations of becoming a writer, right? Um, so yeah, I think part of my upbringing, my dad was a very central figure in my life. Um, but I do think that the decision to study the sciences really came from me. I think I was very interested in, um, you know, uh, very inquisitive and curious. And I think science really gave me an outlet because you're asking questions, you're designing experiments and trying to to best answer those, those, those questions. Um, one of my favorite shows when I was growing up was Medical Detectives. And for the longest time, I wanted to be a toxicologist because it seemed like the toxicologist was the one who always solved you know like the case um, but when I got to varsity you know and I started understanding more about um, the biological sciences the differences between you know biology and chemistry and physics I found out I actually hated chemistry like I absolutely I just I please no I hated chemistry and toxicology was like four different types of chemistry like organic chem inorganic chem all of it and I was like nah so what I had thought toxicology was in reality was not what I had hoped it would be right so then I kind of you know started thinking okay you know what else interests me um and I was always very interested in infectious diseases, right? Things like epidemics and outbreaks and pandemics um, and the impact it has on an individual level, but also on a population level. And so through uh, molecular and cell biology, I, I sort of went through that route. I went into microbiology um, and then eventually I ended up in epidemiology. Um, and yeah, so I suppose, you know, that's how my dad kind of played a role um, just in, you know, some of the decisions that I made. But I think, you know, for the most part, I was quite free to decide what it is that I wanted to study, what it is that I wanted to become. And also I had the room to decide, hey, I wanted to become this when I, you know, when I started varsity, but not really feeling it anymore and also just have the ability to to pivot as well yeah okay no, that's 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 interesting in fact you know there's a blend between you know typically when someone goes the scientific route yeah. it's very rare that you know, someone <laughs> also sees a creative side as well writing yeah as well. Uh, so i think it's also yeah. cool to see someone having a blend i mean i work in the finance yeah. side but you know i always had a creative side and yeah, I'm not podcasty as a person. I'm not the outgoing person. <laughs> I guess always tackling to new spaces is always cool. But now I think yeah. maybe I'd like to understand more so to the actual professional side. You uh -huh. know, you said you uh, you mm. then ended up doing is it epi I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it epidemiologist? Is it Everyone gets tripped up by that word. Don't worry. It's it's epidemiology. Epidem okay, perfect. Now in terms yeah. of actually what exactly is it because you know uh -huh. you when know, the pandemic started we saw people on the news and you see this big title virologist uh epidemiologist yeah. what exactly is it uh-huh so um epidemiology is a branch of medicine you know in, in scientific speak and by definition it's um looking or or rather studying patterns or distributions of disease amongst the population so the key differentiator for epidemiology is you know when you look at someone like um a doctor or a nurse um any of those you know kind of clinician type 
public health professionals, they deal with people or patients on an individual basis and they treat them on an individual basis. But epidemiologists are looking at things on a population level, right? So I'm looking at um, not so much, you know, what is the uh, micro effect of a vaccine on an individual person, but I'm looking at what is the population level effect of vaccines? Do they help? Do they not help, right? So yeah, it's not always looking at disease. Sometimes it's a lot more positive outcomes. I always say um, epidemiologists fundamentally, we deal with outcomes and exposures. So I always say classic epidemiology is doctors way back when started, you know, observing that, hey, a lot of the patients that are coming in that I'm seeing, um, they're developing lung cancer. And one thing that I'm observing across all of them is a lot of them are actually smokers, right? That was, you know, back when, you know, tobacco was used for everything and no one knew about, you know, the effects of tobacco. And then epidemiologists are the guys that said, hey, let's do a study. Um, does smoking increase your chances of developing lung cancer? So, you know, the exposure was smoking and the outcome was lung cancer. And that's basically what we do, you know, as epidemiologists, we look at various um, exposures and then we see, you know, what possible health outcomes, you know, result because of that. But it can also be positive things, you know, not necessarily always disease um, and negative outcomes. It can be, hey, if you exercise three times a week, um, does your risk of a cardiovascular um, adverse event decrease, right? So that's basically what we do. We look at if you're exposed to something, what is the likelihood that you're going to develop a specific outcome? Okay. And then what is a virologist? Yep. Is that something related to viruses or... Yes, absolutely. So a virologist, um, more on the microbiology end of things. So in microbiology, you know, you've got, in terms of microorganisms, you've got bacteria, you've got viruses, you've got fungi. Um, and so virologist is really someone who is um, studying or well-versed or knowledgeable and expert in the study of viruses and how they work um, and also how they affect human beings or, you know, other species around them. Okay. Um, but now in terms yeah. of epidemiology, in terms of how mm -hmm. the career path into getting into it, because I know you mentioned that yeah. you took the route of taking microbiology and all that. Yeah. Is, is that the standard way? Because I know you did your master's. Mm -hmm. in it. Is, is mm -hmm. there a particular career choices of career degrees you have to do mm -hmm. until you end up in that particular career? Or is there a particular mm -hmm. variation you can just choose whatever yeah. science and then get there? Um, so it depends, you know, um, in South Africa, epidemiology is largely offered at the postgraduate level. So you can't do an, an undergrad in epidemiology, right? Um, in, in other countries, you can, you know, do the undergrad, you can go on into postgrad right up to PhD or postdoc. But here, I think there's one university, could be UP, I'm not sure that offers it at, at an honors level, but, you know, um, Stellenbosch and UCT and WITS, all of those universities offer epidemiology at a master's level. Um, and because of that, then, you know, the path to becoming an epidemiologist is, is quite open. So, you know, in my class, you know, I was someone who had come from the lab-based, you know, microbiology scene but you know I had colleagues who were actual clinicians they were doctors I had people who were nurses who were psychologists um, so you didn't necessarily have to study um, 
something specific in your undergrad or even in your honors to do the epidemiology. Um, so, so I think, you know, that's quite advantageous. You know, if you decide, hey, you know, maybe chemistry isn't for me or physics isn't me, isn't for me. And I'm, you know, trying to go into something a little more public health related. That's quite open for a lot of people because I get a lot of questions on, you know, how do I become an epidemiologist? I always say, you know, your, your path is quite open in, in a number of ways. But for me, you know, I'd started off in molecular biology and then I'd done my honors in, in microbiology. And I had, you know, said to my supervisor, I'm not pretty sure that I want to do a master's in microbiology. I found being in the lab a little tedious. Um, it's quite repetitive, you know, because you have to make sure that, you know, whatever experiment that you do, you have to run it in triplicate. Um, so it's basically a whole lot of, you know, repeating experiments. If, you know, if it doesn't work, you run more experiments. If it works, you run more experiments. Um, and I wanted a science that was a little more people oriented. Um, I, I tend to feel like being in the lab, you do all the these experiments in isolation, you publish a paper and that's pretty much where it ends. But I wanted a science where I could see um, the impact that that, you know, science was having on, on people. Um, and the end point wasn't just to publish an academic paper. And so I actually took a gap year um, after my honors in 2017. And I literally spent the whole year writing. That's how I made money and justified being at home to my mom. And I was just trying to figure out what is it that I want to do. And, you know, I, I knew that I wanted a uh, a combination of a study of disease um, because that's what you know I was always interested in when I started in undergrad but I also was very interested and still am in statistics right um, but at the time I just didn't know what program could combine those two things successfully so did a lot of you know research was you know looking at what you know fields can combine these two things and then I happened you know um, across epidemiology and that's at the time you know the the, the program there is still quite new compared to, to to the other existing programs but you know when I read up about it I was like yeah this is exactly the kind of thing that I want to do um, and I think that was sort of like in July or August so I spent a couple of months just not knowing what I wanted to do um, but after I was like, you know what, I want to do epidemiology, that's when the ball started rolling. I applied to it, um, applied for a scholarship. And yeah, the next year I enrolled for the master's program and I started my master's in epidemiology. Dope, dope, dope. Now, I just want to understand what exactly does your day to day look like? You know, yeah. obviously you've spoken about research, statistics. Um, obviously, yeah. now you're not necessarily centered in the lab. But what does your day to day yeah. look like? Like what's a regular Monday morning looking like? Yeah. Like a so, you know, um, when you're an epidemiologist, it's, you know, the kind of work that you do on a day to day is really dependent on what organization you're working for, um, which sector you're working in. Is it public health? Are you in the private sector? Um, so it varies. You know, I have a friend who's working for the World Health Organization in the Free State. So she's very much a field epidemiologist. They're collecting data on COVID. Um, a lot of the stats that you see compiled on COVID, you know, that's the, the, the work that that team is doing there. But for me, um, my current role is what is known as a digital epidemiologist. And that's quite an emerging field. Um, I didn't even know it existed until I got the job, to be quite honest. Um, but I work in the private sector for a data science company called Palindrome Data. So they use artificial intelligence, machine learning, and predictive analytics um, on public health uh, projects. And they're specifically interested in the HIV space. So 
my role as a digital epidemiologist is, you know, I consult, you know, from a traditional epidemiology lens, um, and I try to bridge the two worlds, you know, machine learning and predictive analytics is still a very new field, but it also needs the credibility of a long established field like epidemiology in terms of experimental design, the soundness of the science, and also just being able to kind of bridge the two worlds so that my day to day really is trying to explain to clients like the Orem Institute or Johnson & Johnson or Japaigo, you know, why are we using a machine learning model in this context and how does that link up to what epidemiology looks like in a traditional sense? So I kind of feel like my role is the middleman. You know, I'm trying to kind of pull these two worlds together. It's quite fun. You know, the work is is, is never um, the same. It's always different, different challenges. So on a day-to-day, -day, I bounce between, you know, being... Um, a part of a call with you know a group of data scientists and saying okay guys the methodology that you guys are using to run this experiment is is great or i'm saying that nah, we can't do this it doesn't make sense from a scientific perspective or i'm saying okay in data science you guys would use these terms to describe you know whether a model is performing well or not but epidemiologists and people in public health aren't going to understand it so let's rather use these terms because they're analogous or they're synonymous um i spend a lot of time writing project reports, you know, this is what we did, these are the results we got. Um, I do a lot of client management as well, um, and a lot of stakeholder engagement as well. So on a day-to-day, -day, my days is really the same, but those are just some of the things that you'll find me doing in, in a single week, yeah. Okay, now that sounds interesting, you know, it's not the typical telephone, PC type, 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 yeah. all day. so that's interesting. Yeah. Now, I think maybe let's touched something some people want us to speak about and that's the vaccine um yeah and, you know when i was thinking about how i'm going to ask you these questions about the vaccine you know typically you get asked what's the problem with the vaccine does it work some people hesitant blah 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 but yeah. i want to also maybe speak upon because you did write an amazing article on your on media mm -hmm. as how i first yeah. came across uh your name and i was like wow oh quite interesting exactly you know getting a, a, a very detailed explanation about the issues around hesitance in the space of the vaccine yeah. uh, especially in the pandemic that we're in right now and my first thought was you know where exactly does this because typically it's not just the COVID-19 but this tends to be this yeah hesitance when it comes to medicine uh yeah. issues around treatment uh, especially yeah. in the black community maybe I'm I'm, I'm wrong or maybe mm. it's a global thing but I just try to understand yeah. exactly, is there something unique about our history that relates to mm -hmm. um, medication, uh, mm. treatment, vaccines? Um, but mm. what exactly is your interpretation of that? Is that is that the case mm. whereby we have a historical context when it comes to medicine? Yeah. What is your view on that? Mm. Um, sure. So you know and i think in the that medium article that i wrote i i you know i was thinking you know it would be remiss of me you know to speak about vaccines and be like vaccines are great and we should trust them and anyone who doesn't is silly 
um, because, you know, that would be very dismissive of, you know, the kind of the, the history that Black people, as well as people of color in other countries have had with the scientific community, right? And, you know, in the same way that, you know, we're still navigating racism and um, the domination of certain, you know, most spaces by white men, that was the same thing with science. So, you know, decades back, centuries back, science was predominantly, you know, white men. And they pretty much could do whatever they wanted to do, right? Um, they did very many unethical things that they regarded as science, things that, you know, in, in prison today, we would absolutely never ever condone and it would never be, you know, um, allowed to be conducted by, you know, any sound ethics committee. But, you know, the distrust of the medical and the scientific community is one that is valid, especially amongst Black people and people of color, because there have been many incidents beforehand um, where you know, unethical experiments have been run. You know, there's the famous Tuskegee trial, which happened amongst, you know, African-American men um, in the United States. And there have been so many other, you know, experiments that we know of and may never know of, right, that have happened with, you know, specifically targeting communities of, of color. So that is where that distrust comes from, right? Um, but also, it's, it's also understanding that not, everyone knows that that was, you know, the case back then. So when, when, you, when I speak to someone who is, you know, maybe vaccine hesitant or not particularly trusting of the medical or scientific community, it's sometimes it's not even because they, they know of the history, right, um, that the Black community has had with, you know, scientists and, and, and clinicians back then. Sometimes it's, it's because of, you know, certain cultural things, certain, you know, like, social political context um so it, it's never just one thing that is informing this distrust um it's a combination of things but you know when we want to talk history those are you know some legitimate things that happened back then um that you know people read about might actually make them feel like wow actually you know scientists and, and medical professionals really um didn't have the best interests when it came to the lives and the well-being of Black people and people of colour. Um, but also there have been, you know, things that have happened, um, for example, I always forget his name. Um, I don't know if it's Andrew Wakefield or Lakefield, but anyways, it was a British doctor, infamous. Um, if you type in um, MMR vaccine, autism, his name will probably pop up. And, you know, this is a British doctor, and he infamously did the study where he then linked the MMR vaccine, which is the mumps, measles, rubella vaccine that you get um, shortly after you, you're born. And he linked that to autism in children, right? And that caused such a panic in the UK. Um, and this was decades back. I think it was like four decades back, if, if I'm not mistaken. And you know, it was published in The Lancet, one of the most prestigious journals. And, you know, it was eventually retracted because it was found out that one, there was no science in what that man did. He was pushing an agenda. And two, he falsified a lot of the data that he presented. So that study was actually retracted from The Lancet and his medical license was revoked. So he is no longer a practicing uh, medical doctor in the UK. But the damage that that did is still 
felt even today. There are people um, in the UK and other countries who are, you know, against, you know, having their kids vaccinated specifically with the MMR vaccine because they feel, oh, my child is going to develop autism when in actual fact that was absolute fake science. It was absolute fake news. Um, we can't even qualify it as a science, but, you know, no one especially when you're not knowledgeable about science and how science works and, you know, the full story of what happened, you know, someone's going to read a headline and say, hey, the MMMR, you know, vaccine was linked to autism. I'm not going to get my kids vaccinated. And, you know, that was a really damaging thing that was done by someone who was supposed to be a very trustworthy individual within the scientific and the medical community. So individuals who have done, um, very unethical things who have, um, you know, conducted experiments which were not scientifically sound, um, which were not science at all, but pushed it as science. They have really kind of put us back in terms of, you know, trying to get people a little less vaccine hesitant, um, trying to have less anti-vaxxers, um, you know, opposing vaccines. Um, and, and those are just some of the things, you know, that then people who are very opportunistic um, on social media, especially will cling on, you know, that's where these, you know, um, conspiracy theories will come from that if you get this vaccine, this is what's going to happen to you. And this is what happened to, you know, this person. Sometimes it's coming from very legitimate things that happened in the past, but those things were false. They were untrue. They were unscientific um, and they were shown to be that. But, you know, when you're trying to push an agenda on social media and various platforms, you're not necessarily going to include all that information, are you? So that's just some of the context when it comes to where some of these conspiracy theories come from and how they inform um, vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaxxer uh, sentiments and also just, you know, the power of social media in proliferating those sentiments to an even wider audience. Yeah. Because, you know, as you yeah. were mentioning, uh, I started to think, is there a correlation between one's educational level mm. versus the views on vaccines? I don't know. Is, is that a case in terms of what you've seen? Or is that something that relates? Because sometimes you see, uh -huh. I was just having a discussion with a friend just prior to having this episode and coming up with questions. And he was telling me yeah. that in his view, he thinks that the level of education one has, because, you know, let's say yeah. there's outbreak because for example he's South Africa history HIV was a big problem in this country and yeah. there was still a level of misunderstanding exactly what HIV is you know it's yeah. you, know, you know just wash yourself after you have sex or whatever the case yeah. is and the such information the question therefore becomes is it a case of one's education or is it a case of mm -hmm. just again maybe it's just the history again what, what is yeah. education play a role in terms of how we view vaccines yeah. just overall health yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of studies will, will show you that um, when we look at factors that are influencing certain things, let's say, you know, um, perceptions, right? Yeah. So we look at, we, we sometimes run studies where we're trying to understand perceptions amongst, you know, individuals in the population. And, you know, they will, there are studies that will say, um, the higher your level of education, you know, the less vaccine hesitant that you're going to be, you know, you're going to be a lot more trusting of the scientific community um, or the medical community. Um, and a lot of your decisions are going to be informed, you know, by that trust. But also some studies are going to pick up that, you know, you could have a master's, a PhD, and you are still an anti-vaxxer 
or you don't believe in 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 in, in vaccines, right? Um, so it depends on the population that you're looking at. Perceptions differ from population to population. Um, sometimes, you know, level of education is a significant um, contributor in terms of whether you're vaccine hesitant or anti-vaxxer. And sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's a, it's a combination of things, right? Um, it's the same reason why, for example, um, you could have a master's degree, but you're not wearing your mask in public, right? You have the information available to you. You understand or you've been told, you know, why social distancing is a thing, why you need to be particularly hygienic and, you know, sanitize your hands, wash your hands. But there are very many people with very high levels of education who are still not doing those things. So very often what we see in um, the social sciences and also in public health is how access to information, be that, you know, the information that you are, are given by experts like me or, you know, authoritative bodies like WHO um, or whatever the case may be, that access to information or your own level of education might not actually influence your behavior, right? So there's this like disconnect because we would think that, oh, the more educated you are, we should see a reduction in vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaccine sentiments. But that's not always the case. So sometimes there are a number of other factors that are at play, right? What community you are in is also quite, you know, pivotal in determining um, some of the perceptions that you might hold. Um, and that is outside of the level of education that you might have. Have um, your also your your own personal experiences, right? Might also inform that. So you might be a person again who has gone to university um, or even has a secondary level of, of education where you can make sense of certain things, right? And, and make sense of the information that is given to you. But maybe you've had a particularly bad experience with, you know, doctors and the public health system and the medical community. So already that has fostered um, the sense of distrust. So anything that the, those communities are going to, to tell you or, or advise you on, you're inherently going to be um, distrustful of it because of your personal experiences. So it really is a combination of factors outside of just your level of education that's going to inform what level of trust you're going to have in, in the scientific community and also whether you're going to be vaccine hesitant or just outright anti-vaxxer. Yeah. yeah. Sheesh. Now, now it makes me wonder now because, you know, social media has, yeah, it's played a significant role in terms of the pandemic, people's views. Yeah. And even in my own thoughts, I was thinking, you know, back in the day, if you wanted information, you mostly had the library. Mm. You had to literally go to a library, look yeah. for a book on a particular topic to learn about something. Whereas yeah. today you have literally your phone in your hand and you can literally Google yeah. anything and literally you can get, or YouTube is your worst, you can just type something. Yeah. And whatever the, has the most views or is the most catchy title, bam. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're in this stream roll of videos telling you yeah. that there's a there's depopulation going on and you got to yeah. worry about that. So what is your view on social media in terms of this current pandemic we're in? Is it helpful? <sighs> in your view? Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> quite the conversation. Hey? I think it could be a separate episode on its own. It could actually be a thesis. And people are writing, you know, doing PhDs on the impact of social media, various aspects of social media on public health, right? Um, but my goodness, where do I begin? 
let me start off with the positives, right? It's, it's, it's a lot easier to address. I think social media, particularly for me as someone who is, you know, social media savvy, um, I think I'm, I'm most prominent on Twitter um, and I have, you know, used that space um, to try and communicate the right information, right? Um, and it's been very helpful. I've, you know, had people, hundreds of people DMing me, asking, you know, about whether it's safe for them specifically to get the vaccine and, you know, just wanting some of their answers, some of their questions to be answered with regards to some of the uncertainties and their fears around the vaccine. And that's been tremendously useful because they're the same people that, you know, I've sent a quick, you know, response to that don't worry because of X, Y, Z. And a week later, two weeks later, they've come back and said, hey, I got vaccinated. Thanks so much for giving me that information. Um, so social media has really been great in terms of allowing experts to um, have direct access to the populations that they want to address, right? It's allowed, you know, the head of the COVID committee in South Africa to be able to say things very directly to, to the South African population, right? It's allowed us to have an update on, you know, what are the COVID cases looking like every day? Yeah, you can watch it on the news, but you can also access it via social media, right? Um, so, you'll just have to forgive me. My little dog is crying outside. Um, so social media has really been a great tool in just in terms of making sure that people do have access to the right information in as much as there's a lot of fake news, right, um, doing the rounds. Um, it's been tremendously helpful for me, like I said, um, and, and I think it has um, contributed a lot of good, right? I think were it not for social media, maybe we might have had a lot more vaccine hesitancy. You know, we might have had a lot more anti-vaxxer sentiments. It's, I think it's it's, it's an interesting question to ask. Um, maybe not um, a feasible experiment to run, but, you know, it begs the question, you know, what would anti-vaxxer sentiments and vaccine hesitancy, you know, how would that look like in the absence of social media, right? And as much as it is allowed for a lot of good and the ability to, you know, directly share resources and fact-checked accurate information, you know, social media is also the space where fake news is traveling at 16 times the rate of legitimate, you know, verified information. And that's very difficult to contend with, right? And, you know, whatever tweet that I am sending out and saying, hey, this is why you should not be worried about, you know, the COVID vaccine or vaccines in general, or whatever the case may be, um, there are 16 other tweets, you know, um, that are doing the rounds at the same time, um, but at a faster rate that are saying the exact opposite thing, right? And it's not just on Twitter, it's on Instagram, it's on Facebook. You know, Facebook is just really, I would say, the home of anti-vaxxer sentiments and, and vaccine hesitancy. And I think they've been very poor in, in addressing that. Um, WhatsApp is, is also, you know, um, a big one, not surprised since, you know, Facebook, WhatsApp, you know, same, same owner, but, you know, WhatsApp is, you know, now you've got all these chain videos and messages being sent and it's, it's very tough. I always say it's very difficult to, if I had to spend time addressing misinformation versus sending out information that I know, um, 
is accurate, is true, has been, you know, fact-checked, is, you know, um, supported by other experts in the field, I simply would just not have enough hours in the days to dispel misinformation. Um, and, and so it really has to be, you know, a decision to say on some days, you know, I'm going to address misinformation because sometimes they're particularly harmful things that are doing the rounds at that particular moment in time that you have to address because whatever message that you're going to try and send out subsequent to that is quite dependent on you debunking this myth. So sometimes I, you know, will do a thread on debunking these myths on COVID or on vaccines, right? But a lot of my time and my efforts um, and my energy is reserved to making sure that I'm trying to put out correct information because there's just simply too much information that is fake and that is illegitimate doing the rounds for me as an individual, certainly, you know, to be able to adequately address um, and so it really just becomes, you know, that 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 decision to say, let's rather try and push out as much information that we know to be correct and true as possible. And when we have time and when it is necessary and relevant, let's address the, the misinformation. So I suppose that's, you know, the the highlights of social media has been great in many instances. I've seen it for myself as well, but also the drawbacks of social media and just the speed at which information is shared across platforms. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges when you're an expert in any field, let alone a scientist who's trying to say something in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. That's, that's very true. You know, and part of the reason I was trying to avoid having questions asking you things like, what is the vaccine? What does it do? Yeah. You know, some when I was coming up with the questions, obviously he's talking to the friends about, you know, the kind of questions we should ask Rufaro. And yeah. someone's asking, you know, ask you about what the vaccine does. And I was like, Yeah. You know, just send a link of your your Twitter page. I'm like, Yeah, go there. And because yeah. <laughs> I feel like sometimes you don't want to regurgitate something that's already there. Yeah. Also empower people to also do proper due yeah. diligence and read, reading up on things. But I wanted yeah. to see what's your take on some of these aspects of, you know, related to the vaccine, the pandemic. Uh-huh. And some of the questions I had was there was a question around, mm. you know, now South Africa is at a point where some people are getting vaccinated, some people are not. Mm. Yeah. Um, and obviously there's also the aspects of the mandate that this people are kind of worried about and that's also mm. being in place. Um, now the question therefore becomes in the current context, there's the whole thing about herd immunity and mm. what exactly does that mean in terms of South Africa? Yeah. What rate of people need to be vaccinated? And if not, yeah. what does that mean for the country? Yeah. Geez, people love talking about herd immunity, but when you, when you <laughs> actually get down to what herd immunity is, then, you know, people are like, yeah, I'm not doing that. So, you know, herd immunity or, or rather population immunity, right, is... Um, <sighs> It's this concept that, you know, there is a disease, right? It could be any disease. And there, it takes a period of time, right? After people become infected with this disease, some people are going to die. Some people are going to get sick but recover. Some people aren't going to become infected at all. But it's a point at which the disease no longer has the same impact um, as it had when it first entered the population. And basically, it's no longer running as rampant, right? And most of the population 
or rather, let's say about 66 to about 70% of the population is now immune, right? So they're, they're not going to be um, adversely affected by this disease. They're not going to become infected because they now have an immunity against this disease, right? The thing about herd immunity is that it can take years to develop, right? And that's something that people don't understand. They're like, yeah, no, let's, let's not do the vaccine. It's just, you know, wait for herd immunity. That can take years, right? And by then, so many people have died. You know, not everyone who gets, you know, infected with a particular um, pathogen and, you know, that, that causes a specific disease is going to survive, right? Um, natural selection thing, not everyone's going to survive. Those who do survive um, are either going to fully recover or they're going to have maybe, you know, long lasting effects, you know, after they've been infected by the disease. And then you're going to have those that were not infected at all. So herd immunity is not the responsible way to go insofar as saying let's just let COVID or, or any other disease for that matter um, kind of just, you know, run rampant and let's see how it goes, right? There are some diseases that we refer to as being self-limiting. So, for example, when we have cholera outbreaks, right, um, because, uh, because of the way that cholera is, you know, transmitted um, and all of those things, an outbreak doesn't necessarily become a pandemic because the pathogen itself is self-limiting. So at a certain time, it eventually just dies out. That's why we have so many recurrent cholera outbreaks. It starts, it flares, it dies out. Infectious diseases like COVID, right, or like SARS, which is almost like the sister to, to COVID, aren't like that. So we can't just say, let's let it play out and see how things go. It's not self-limiting in, in that regard. Um, so it's just going to keep infecting people and being transmitted from one person to the next, right? So then allowing the population to just kind of chill and see how things go is, is not the responsible way to go. And it's going to result in a lot more people dying and being adversely affected by COVID than is necessary. So the best way for the population to achieve herd immunity is that everyone gets vaccinated, right? Because the vaccine is one, trying to prevent you from getting COVID, but should you get COVID, you're going to have less severe symptoms, right? And that's particularly important now that we've got so many variants going around, right? Each variant that comes up is a lot stronger. It's a lot more potent. You're going to have a higher viral load. You're going to have worse symptoms as a result. And your likelihood of recovering um, is also a little bit shaky just because it's a much stronger variant, right? And the more time that passes with people being unvaccinated, right, means that COVID has the opportunity to go from one person to the next. And as it's bouncing between people in a population, that's where these mutations or these changes happen. And that's how we have one variant after the next, after the next. We had an alpha variant. We then had a beta variant. We then had a delta variant, which is the majority of cases in South Africa currently. But, you know, who said a couple of weeks ago that now we have the Epsilon variant, um, which I think right now is a variant of interest. It's not necessarily a variant of concern in South Africa, but in other countries, they're already, you know, struggling with, with other variants. And so the more time that people spend being unvaccinated, really, it is just giving um, the, the pathogen that causes COVID room to bounce around between people and become a lot stronger, a lot more resistant. Um, 
And that's that. That's not a scenario that that we want, right? So the best way for us to achieve um, 100% herd immunity is if 100% of the population, you know, were vaccinated. That's not always possible. Um, not necessarily because of vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaccine um, or anti-vaxxer sentiments, but sometimes logistically, it is not possible to get 100% of a population vaccinated. But if we get about two thirds or 66% of the population vaccinated, that's a great way for us to then be able to say, you know what, um, our population has reached herd immunity. And that's really one of the targets, right? To get at least 66% of the South African population um, vaccinated so that one, we put an end to, you know, the, the development of these, um, these stronger variants, but also two, we limit the ability of COVID in terms of it being able to travel in the population. And then eventually it will die out, right? Post-pandemic, um, post-COVID pandemic looks um, like, you know, a couple of outbreaks maybe in the Free State, a couple of outbreaks maybe in the Eastern Cape, but things that we very much have under control. And, you know, maybe after a couple of weeks, a month or so, we can say, oh, this province no longer has COVID, right? So that's what we're working towards. But right now, our only sort of means to getting there is getting people vaccinated. We don't have a definitive treatment for COVID-19. And so the vaccine really does become our best shot. And, you know, anti-vaxxers and vaccine hesitant people aside, if we can just get people who are willing to become vaccinated and they, you know, form part of that 66%, then it's, 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 it becomes a secondary issue of, you know, people who don't want to get vaccinated. And, and, and the primary goal is to just make sure that we've got about 66% vaccinated, right? That has been impeded by the fact of, you know, like things like vaccine shortages and not having enough supply, not being able to produce our own things like that um and i think currently you know sometimes we'll reach our target in terms of the number of people we need to be vaccinating each day and sometimes we won't sometimes this is you know very logistical thing where certain vaccine stations are not open during weekends you know why are we not vaccinating during the weekends or maybe they're not open past a certain time maybe we're understopped so it's a lot of things that are impeding our ability right now to be able to vaccinate the number of people we need to get to this target of you know 66 percent of the population being vaccinated but it's something that we we constantly have to strive towards because right now in the absence of any other treatment or um definitive cure for COVID 19 the vaccine really is our best shot. I think about the United States where they've vaccinated over 184 million people. And it's crazy because our population is what, 52, 53 million people. Um, and yet we're nowhere close to, to, to making sure that, you know, at least two thirds of our population has been vaccinated. But yeah, the short answer really to, you know, to this question of herd immunity, um, we can't just let COVID kind of just happen on its own and see how it goes. There's just too much loss of life that that would entail. And so it's really necessary for us to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And that is how we will have um, herd immunity. We have herd immunity in terms of measles, in terms of things like polio and all of those things because people have been vaccinated and it's exactly the same concept and the same process that's happening right now with COVID-19. Yeah, you know, as you're mentioning the whole herd immunity thing, you know, I was thinking about vaccines, you know, yeah. for example, when I was a child, like me and my brother got chicken pox, uh, yeah. around 2000. And, you know, unfortunately my brother passed away from it and I still have his wow. face marks on it, my face, but 
I was always thinking, because I ended up when I was a doubt, like, you know what, was there a chickenpox vaccine? You know, yeah. and I realized, I think South Africa was only introduced at a later stage. Yeah. Uh, but I was actually thinking, you know what, it's, it's kind of things that you have to kind of think about and the yeah. importance of, you know, taking treatment as best as yeah. possible, being knowledgeable about the effects of certain medication. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, as you said, you know, herd immunity is not necessarily the goal, but yeah. it's important to at least get people, as much people to be vaccinated. So at least we avoid new variants, you know, because I always think, you know, at some point it's going to get to the zombie point, zombie populistic yeah. point of view. <laughs> Who knows? But I think for the sake of time, because obviously uh-huh. the time is probably running short now, maybe my, my last question before uh-huh. I go to the quick, quick hit questions is yeah. next year, this time, uh-huh. where do you think the world will be? Hmm. That's that's a very good question. Um, we're in October 2021. So where are we going to be in October 2022? Um, I suppose let me start off with, with where I would hope we would be, right? I, I hope that um, we would be very close to having, you know, the majority of our population vaccinated. Um, I would hope that that would be the case as well in, in other countries, Um and I think, you know, in South Africa, in as much as, you know, we had little stumbling blocks with regards to shortages and trying to get vaccines delivered. And, and I think we're, you know, we're well past that. Now it's just saying we have all these vaccines, but, you know, we don't have the people to vaccinate. But in other countries, that's very different, right? Um, equitable access to vaccines is still quite a thing, right? And that also feeds into this whole thing of, you know, mandatory vaccinations and travel and vaccine passports. And, and you know, I, I said vaccine passports are not a new thing. You know, when you travel to, you know, West Africa and, you know, countries in, in, in North Africa as well, you're required to have a vaccination for yellow fever, you know. Um, and if you don't have it, you're not entering the country. So mandatory vaccines are not a new thing. To go to school, you know, when you start grade one, you need to have your your vaccine card, your vaccine record. It's just a prerequisite. Um, So it's nothing that is new, exclusive to COVID-19. But for me, if you're going to to say that travel is dependent on mandatory vaccinations um, or that, you know, people can only come to work or do certain things if they're vaccinated, then we also have to address the issue of access, right? Because if we don't have equitable access to vaccines, then that's when it becomes discriminatory. Right. You can't say to someone, well, you need a vaccine, but at the same time, they don't have access to that vaccine. Right. Um, So my hope is that this time next year, most people in this country and other countries as well, especially the the developing countries and the global south, as we refer to, um, one, have access to the vaccine and two, would have vaccinated, you know, the majority of their populations to reach this population immunity. Um, I would hope that, you know, life would start returning to some kind of normal, but a normal that is very cognizant that, you know, whilst we might have life after COVID, we also live, we need to live life um, with the cognizance that this is not the last pandemic that we're going to go through. Um, things like climate change are, are definitely going to to influence um, the, the, the pandemics we're going to be seeing in the future and very many things, right? Um, things like poverty and and all of that, the way that people are forced to live, those are all things that kind of um, exacerbate, you know, things like outbreaks and pandemics. And if we don't start addressing things like inequality, if we don't start paying attention to climate change and, you know, that how that affects, you know, things um, um, like microorganisms um, and, and stuff melting from the glaciers and all of that, 
then we're going to have another pandemic. That's that's a definite, right? And I always say that COVID has been an interesting mix of very highly infectious, but also not, you know, with a high mortality, like something like Ebola or dengue fever, right? But we're going to eventually, you know, hopefully not in our generation, but we're eventually going to have a pandemic that combines potency in terms of mortality and also infectiousness as well as its mode of transmission. And then we're going to be in big trouble. So the way that we're living needs to change, right? The sanitizing, the social distancing, the wearing of masks. I think that's something that, you know, we should ideally take even in, you know, life after COVID when people have flu, because you remember, you know, thousands of people die from ordinary influenza each year. If we more, if we wore masks during, you know, flu season, we would have a lot less, you know, people getting sick, also a lot less people dying each year. If we sanitized and kept washing our hands, if we practiced social distancing, especially when we have things like flu or, you know, whatever else, you know, diseases are doing the rounds at, at that time in our, you know, airborne, um, I think we would see an improvement in health outcomes. And I think we might just be able to buy ourselves enough time before the next pandemic. Um, and the thing about pandemics is, you know, you do a lot of this preparation, you, you know, you have these centers that are monitoring and surveilling and trying to pick up, do we have more cases of this thing than we had last year? Um, but sometimes when a pandemic hits, it hits and, you know, countries aren't as well prepared as they would like to. But I think Ultimately, I would like for us to, you know, to use this as, as, as a really big lesson, you know, and, and it sounds kind of, I don't know, weird saying that because a lot of people have died, right? But I think in the efforts to prevent a further loss of life, we can use it as a lesson on, on how we can go about leading more responsible lives, um, much, much healthier lives. And I'm not talking necessarily about healthy eating and all those things, but just like healthy practices and acknowledging that we don't live in isolation. We live in a community and a pandemic is a result of how a community and a population lives. Right. So that is my hope. Realistically, where I see ourselves being next year, I, I do in a South African context, I do see us still struggling um, in terms of, you know, hitting that population immunity, trying to get people vaccinated. Um, I think we're going to have a number of challenges specifically, you know, in the constitutional court about these mandatory vaccinations and, you know, vaccine passports and the like. Um, I do see the pandemic, you know, being used or, or continuing to be used as a political tool, you know, um, which has been very unfortunate to witness, but it is what it is. Um, but honestly, I, I do think that we are going to be in a much better place than we are at currently. I would hope that, you know, in the space of a year, we would have managed to push those vaccinations. We would have upped campaigns and, you know, access to the right information such that people would become a less, you know, vaccine hesitant um and and yeah man that we just have a lot less covid cases than we have currently we're not going to be seeing our emergency rooms and our hospitals you know public and private sector just filled um to capacity i hope that that situation it should have you know um i think considerably been um ameliorated in the space of a year um, but yeah, it's very difficult to, to kind of say some of these things, you know, because there are a lot of moving parts and it's also dependent on how various stakeholders, um, you know, interact and, you know, the decisions that they make. But, you know, those are my hopes and some of the things that I think are going to be happening a year from now. Um, but I yeah. guess, you know, time will tell and I guess we'll just also have to see what happens till then.
cross crossfingers, yeah. I guess. Uh, cross-fingers, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that int, but you know, at yeah. least, you know, there is a mix of, as you hope, uh, and yeah. I think it's important things to also hope and look forward and just have that conf- confidence that things should get better. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I really appreciate at least the context about, you know, understanding the aspects of the pandemic. Mm. Um, also, just the continuation of things like wearing masks, even post the yeah. pandemic, and yeah. if should there be a cure, just practicing healthy living. Yeah. Um, but I think for the sake of time, let me just go through some quick. These are questions yeah. whereby it's not necessarily related to the topic. Okay. I just want to understand maybe how you manage some of these things. These are just okay. casual, fun questions. So, just off the top of your head, some okay. quick questions. Uh, first question: uh-huh. Pandemic life. Uh-huh. What's your go-to movie or series? Uh, oh, go to um, sucks. I watch a lot of documentaries. It can get a bit heavy, so I don't watch as many series or movies as, as I would like to. But I love Squid Game on Netflix. That was absolutely amazing. I'm probably not going to watch it again, but my go-to series has been Squid Game. Outside of that, I think I watched a lot of The Office, the US version. I absolutely love that. I think I've watched it like three times now. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Uh, next one. Well. Best highlight of the pandemic so far in your life? Highlight. Um, <laughs> what has been the highlight? Um, having an excuse not to have to leave my house. Like when people are like, hey, you want to meet up? Sorry, it's a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's been really great. Not having to kind of, you know, like validate why I don't want to go out. I just can say, yeah, it's a yeah. pandemic. I stayed home. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, also, well, I had a couple of questions regarding you, obviously the writing part in your journalism. Uh-huh. Uh, but if there was one particular topic uh-huh. and for which publication would you write for? What topic would you want to write mm. about? If you could choose any publication. Huh. Um, hmm. Wow. Um, hmm. Wow, you caught me off guard there. <laughs> um, I think I would... Uh, one of my wishes has been to write for the New York Times. I think they are a behemoth just in terms of editorial standard. And, you know, I've, I've read so much from the New York Times. Some of my favorite writers, you know, I've written for the New York Times. So it would definitely be the New York Times. And honestly, the honest answer would be whatever story had come to me in that moment, I would hope that I'd be able to pitch it to the New York Times and that it's a story that they would run with. Can't think of one right now because I've been pitching so many ideas to so many different publications. But whatever story I was really wanting to write at that time, I would hope that I would pitch to New York Times and that they would run with it. Yeah. Okay, okay. Are you still writing right now, though? Yeah, oh, yeah. So outside of my nine to five, I'm still writing. I'm writing yeah. for the Africa Report. I'm writing for New Frame. I'm also writing for Amaka, which is a London-based publication. So, yeah, I, I yeah, yeah, I still I still write quite a bit. Freelancing, of course. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm still writing quite a bit. So I'm still doing very much of, you know, the best of both worlds type thing. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Then the last one, mm-hmm. uh, it's a pandemic question. Well, okay. Uh, zombie apocalypse uh, about to arise uh, in two days. Do you have a thousand rand only? The groceries or well, shops are still open. What is the thousand rand going to? And you can only use it for, you can only last for one week until, the, let's say, they uh, get a cure. You know, the zombies are probably going to kill us. So I'd probably just go buy a pair of sneakers to be honest. Joking. So what would I buy with the thousand rand? I, I guess I'd buy, you know, 
necessities. Um, I, I buy feminine products. I'm going to need, I'm going to need those. I'm, I'm going to buy, um, sure. Guys, and I don't even cook. Okay, let's let's remove necessities. Yes. Guilty pleasure. Ah, let's guilty pleasure. Five thousand rand. Oh, yeah. What's it? What's it? Got a few days to live. Also, what's your guilty pleasure going to rush? So am I definitely going to die? Yeah, let's put it like that. Ah, okay, it's fine. I'd buy a bit of food. I mean, I guess, but I go buy shoes. You know, drippers forever. So I'd buy shoes, post <laughs> my snaps on the gram, and then call it a day. <laughs> oh, perfect. perfect. <laughs> cool. Uh, Rufaro, uh, from my side, thank you again for these availing yourself. Uh, I know yeah. Saturdays are quite hectic for some people. It's your personal time. Uh, but I thank you again. And I think from the other team, from the podcast, yeah. really appreciate your time. Uh, this was really informative. I think these kind of conversations are important. Uh, sometimes we try to shallow it. Yeah. Sometimes podcasts are uh, based off humor and stuff. And Absolutely. try to have fun conversations to get clicks and all that. Absolutely. But I think just having informative discussions is key. Uh, so I thank you again for these being part of the podcast today. Yeah, no, this has been really fun. You know, sometimes I, uh, I, I have, you know, mental illness is a thing, guys, but, you know, I have a little bit of anxiety sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, oh, how is this podcast going to go? And I have so much anxiety. I always say like the anticipation of an event is sometimes so much more extreme than the event itself. But this was really fun. It, it was definitely not a waste of my time. Um, it's been a great start to my day, actually. Um, thank you for hosting. I know you said you're usually behind the scenes, but I thought you were a, a brilliant host. It was a really fun, um, really engaging conversation. I loved the format. Um, yeah, I hope we do it again. Uh, perfect. Uh, I was actually hoping one or the other day, well, in the future, hopefully we can have more discussions around just overall diseases, viruses, Absolutely. and more so tap into more exactly what you do in your career. Absolutely. But yeah, uh, most of the journalistic part was also tried a lot of questions about that, but yeah, maybe yeah. in the future. Absolutely. But I really appreciate uh, joining the podcast. I think yeah. I'll just let you know once the podcast is out. Okay. Uh, obviously, I'm going to do some editing and all okay. that. Uh, don't forget me to send me your pictures. So oh, yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. All righty. Well, I have a question for you, but I will offline that. Um, should I send you an email? Should I Instagram you? Instagram. Cozies. All righty. So thank you so much.